Everyone has a story and everyone has a purpose. On this show, we'll dive into how you can obtain financial freedom through real estate investing and how we can use this to live a life full of intention and purpose. Welcome to the Live Like You Mean It podcast. I'm your host, Van Hagee, and today we have my friend, Shaw. What's up, Shaw? Hey, Van. How's it going? Thanks for having me on the show. Of course. Thanks for coming on. So I'll give him a quick quick summary. Uh, Shaw is currently a student at the University of San Diego Law School, where he's studying both law and real estate. After a frustrating stint trying to do the impossible, <laughs> beat the S&P 500, Shaw repositioned himself to finding alternatives to the publicly traded securities. Along the ride, he stumbled upon several interesting niches that we will be discussing today, namely commercial real estate. So awesome. Tell me a little bit about you, your background with, you know, starting with school and even wanting to develop a career. Like, how did you get into real estate? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in a very sort of traditional immigrant household. So, I mean, my parents are South Asian. Anyone who's familiar with like South Asian households are very aware of like how, insistent they are on like higher education and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing but it's something that I grew up around so I kind of had the impression of like as a kid that like you know I'm gonna have to be a professional to do well but um, as I grew older I started to realize that like you know some of the most successful people and some of the people that are doing really really well are not people with you know great educations but they're people who have other sort of intangibles and that kind of led me down the rabbit hole of uh, you know, financial education. And the real sort of eye opener for me was around the age of 22, 23. I read a book, uh, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, that's one book. And then I read another book that was The Millionaire Next Door. And that's easily my favorite book. I know a lot of people talk about Rich Dad, Poor Dad, but I think Millionaire Next Door for me was the one that really opened my eyes to the world of, um, you know, becoming more financially astute, um, understanding how wealth is built and I still remember to this day, there's one quote that stuck out to me. And as a Texan, I think you could relate. Uh, there, was a, there was an interview with a wealthy Texan in the book. And they asked him, like, what do you think of people that have a lot of big houses and big cars, but don't have much wealth? And the quote was, that's big hat, no cattle. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that's something that stuck with me because I thought to myself, like, you know, we spent, or the, the average person spends a lot of their life, you know, uh, buying hats just to show off to other people, but you know, real wealth is built through, you know, buying cattle. So I decided to go on my first foray into the world of, you know, stock investing. Cause I think that was the, I guess the asset class at the time that was just very approachable. There was so much information about it. There was just tons of resources and that's precisely where I went wrong. It was too much of an open market. There's too much information out there. There's too many people operating in this world. And that's where I started getting familiar with ideas like um, the idea of an efficient versus a non-efficient market, the idea of arbitrage. And uh, from there, it kind of led me to uh, pursue alternative assets. Sweet. I had a very similar story, you know, mine also did start with Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I'm actually not a huge reader. So after Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I was on YouTube looking at, you know, Robert Kiyosaki's videos, which recommended me to all these other videos. And kind of was the same way. And I was like, okay, financial freedom or financial independence is something I should be striving for. And I immediately went, okay, boom, I'm going to be a day trader and make 8,000 a day. <laughs> and, you know, I'm grateful I did because I realized, oh my gosh, this is so stupid. And not if you're good at it though, you know, that's the thing. And I kind of realized like, I, I love that big hat, no cattle, because 
when you do kind of flip the switch into the idea of like being financially astute, like you said, you find a lot of people who tell you, um, start a Shopify store and within two months you'll have eight Lamborghinis. And it's like, okay, what is actually the point of like, you know, education? And then with that, you kind of find like these recurring themes of like long-term wealth and like passive income and more control over your wealth rather than, you know, trying to have like risk adjusted returns. And tell me a little bit about why alternative investment, like what they are and why they're even something to consider. Absolutely. So an alternative investment, the way I define it is sort of anything that, you know, goes beyond the realm of publicly traded equities um, and anything outside of the single family house, single family home investments. And the reason I say that is because single family home investments are something that um, everyone sort of makes at some, or not everyone, but a lot of people make at some point in their lifestyle right. or some, some point in their life. Sorry. So the idea of an alternative investment is something that's illiquid in a market that's inefficient in which you are leveraging the expertise of other people and um, you're also leveraging debt. So it doesn't necessarily have to be that the alternative investment asset checks off all the boxes, but that's just a general idea. So a, a very simple example would be like a multifamily or an industrial real estate syndication. And that's, again, you know, it checks off a lot of those boxes because the multifamily market, um, you know, whether we like to admit or not, it's an inefficient market. You're dealing with, you know, you can have mispricing of assets. You know, it's, it's common or maybe not so much anymore, but it was very common at some point where you'd have an asset that should have traded at a six cap, but was being sold at a seven cap. And as an investor, you know, the, the thing that you're really trying to look for is that you're trying to exploit inefficiencies in a market. In the stock market, this is extremely difficult because there's so much information and everything is reflected instantaneously. The moment you hear about something happen about a stock, the price would either go up or go down within a matter of seconds. And when you're in that world and you're trying to compete with these quants, these quants working on Wall Street, you're trying to compete with these sophisticated algorithms that are built by some of the smartest computer scientists in the world, you don't stand much of a chance trying to exploit the inefficiency because it's just too fast and it's well beyond the means of your natural cognitive capacity. But in the world of multifamily real estate or I mean any kind of commercial real estate really, you know, you're dealing with a market that's inefficient, that's slow, and it gives you time to actually react and take advantage of any sort of mispricing at an asset level. And that's one hallmark of alternative investments. It's like you're looking at a, an ass, a market that's inefficient and you're looking at a market that's slow to move and you're looking at the market that's not necessarily accessible. You can't just go online and buy, you know, multifamily real estate. Like, you know what I mean? It's not that simple. You can't just go online and buy a uh, industrial real estate or securities and in industrial syndication. And a lot of that has to do with SEC regulation. But um, in general, that's the idea. I mean, the more opaque a market becomes, the more inefficient it is and the more, uh, inefficiencies, the more inefficiencies that are being produced, the more opportunities there are for a sophisticated investor to make outsized returns on a favorable risk adjusted basis. Cool. So that makes sense. The idea that there's a little bit of exclusivity that kind of filters out um, having too many people saturating the market and um, kind of artificially, you know, efficiencyizing the market. So we have these things that are kind of hard to invest in. A little bit of knowledge is required. Like you said, the SEC requires you to be at least sophisticated. And 
beyond that, let's say I'm an engineer and I love my job and I make a lot of money and uh, I put it all in my 401k and my financial advisor says that it's going to grow at like 7% a year and I don't have to touch it. Like why, why would I want to invest in something so complicated and so, you know, like why would I have to learn so much about something I don't really care about if I can get good returns in the stock market? Right. So there's several advantages to investing in syndication. I think one of them has to do with alignment of interest. And this is something I harp about a lot to people that are trying to learn about private investments is that when you're investing in a stock market, you're investing in a company. Stocks are essentially units of ownership in a company. They're not just ticker symbols. So when you're investing in a unit of ownership in a company, oftentimes what's in the best interest of the shareholders is not what management does on a daily basis. You know, management for the most part is very disconnected. I've seen this in many instances where they're very disconnected. They do not have the shareholders interest in mind. They do things that are very short term because, you know, they're trying to appease a bunch of analysts on Wall Street. Right. So what this has real repercussions on your investment because management will resort to, you know, thinking in very short term time horizons because they're only there for a certain period of time. So because of that, you know, they'll do things that are imprudent and those imprudent activities can hurt the value of the company on a long-term basis, but they don't really care because they're going to be gone in a few years and they're going to have some nice cushy package and nice, you know, uh, you know, some nice benefits that come with being CEO of a major company. So you got to ask yourself, are you investing with people that have very little, you know, not only just very little skin in the game, but they quite, they quite frankly do not care about the long-term um, longevity of the company. And that's not always the case, but you're always taking the risk by doing so. When you're investing in a private syndication, a well-structured deal is, is made in such a way that the, the general partner or the operator, their interests are aligned with yours and you get paid first before the operator gets paid, you know? That's something that's very powerful that a lot of people need to understand is that these syndications, they look complicated on the surface, but you know, when you break down and you peel the layers of the onion, you realize that the sponsor in well-structured in well structured syndications have a, a common interest with you. And I can't point to an example of you know, a publicly traded you know, institution that has even as close to alignment that exists in a private equity syndication. So that's just one thing that I would want to highlight. The second thing I'd want to highlight is stability. You know, public markets are, again, they're driven by emotion. And, you know, whether we like to admit it or not, you know, human beings, they get emotional over all sorts of things. You know, they, they get emotional about changes in the geopolitical sentiment that, uh, from a global standpoint. They get, they get emotional about, you know, um, certain statements made by a CEO and some of this stuff is just ridiculous, right? And your investment, it becomes uh, sensitive to sentiment. And you got to ask yourself, is that something that you want to have your portfolio be subject to? Do you want it to be out of your control? And for me personally, I didn't like that at all. I wanted things to be within my control. So I, I decided that um, private syndications from a real estate standpoint, they just made the most sense because I can control uh, who I work with. I can control where I invest. I can control um, the kind of sponsors I want to work with. I can control how much I put into a deal. And that to me is very, very powerful because a lot of that control doesn't exist when you're in the traditional investment space of like, uh, let's say public equities or bonds. So that's the second thing I'd want to highlight. 
And the third thing I want to highlight is commercial real estate returns on a risk-adjusted basis have constantly outperformed the S&P 500. If you look at any REIT index that, you know, the REITs have always outperformed the S&P 500. Commercial real estate on a long-term basis has outperformed the S&P 500. Um, you know, you have cash flow in combination with appreciation. And you look at where dividend stocks are trading right now, you know, you're not going to get, you know, you're not going to get the same kind of cash flow that you get from commercial real estate in the stock market world. And that's something that's a very important thing for me because at the end of the day, cash flow is what we rely on to, you know, pay expenses. You know, I could have all the appreciation in the world, but you know, that doesn't mean anything if, you know, I can't pay my bills. So that's another thing I wanted to highlight. I mean, I can, I can harp about the topic for yeah. ages and ages, but I'll just cut it short for now. Yeah, no, like you were saying, the, the more stuff you say, the more I realize, like, I can't even lay down all the benefits, you know, I'd have to write this stuff down to be able to <laughs> relay all of it. Because like you said, the, the risk adjusted basis of the returns. First of all, we should talk about the elephant in the room, which is, if, you know, according to the last 50 years at an average of what, eight to 10%. And that's gross. So like, that doesn't account for whatever fees you're having to pay um, your broker, any uh, volatility. So for example, if, you know, it drops 50% and then jumps 50%, you're not even, you lost money because you had to actually, um, you had to gain more percentage back than what you lost to actually break even and stuff like that. And um, with a syndication, first of all, you know, a, a typical, things are a little weird with coronavirus right now, but a typical average annual return would be about 20. When you, that's like typical IRR, 15 to 20. You'd factor in appreciation, cash flow, and everything. And you're looking at 20. And that's tax advantaged, which is another huge thing. When, you know, when you're investing in food, shelter, and like, you know, that, that's the stuff that you're always going to have customers and there's always going to be demand. And with that, the government's always going to incentivize you to invest in those things. So uh, really, really, really cool stuff. And then the other point, you talked about was, uh, I guess the volatility. So like you said, you're, you're not controlling this thing that's determined by, you know, they're literally, and depending on how big the company is you're investing in, um, some big fortune 500 companies might need to literally expend funds to please a public opinion at certain times. So they, they might need to say, we're dropping 10 million bucks right now for this cause. And there's this thing of public image and it's like, Man, what well, you're as a shareholder, you have no say in massive, massive business decisions. Um, whereas in a syndication, like you said, you pick your operator, you pick the business plan, and ultimately, running an apartment complex is not easy by any means, but it's a hell of a lot easier than running a ten thousand person company. You know, so right. And one of the things I wanted to add is that when you're investing in a syndication. Uh, you do have voting rights. I mean, they're limited, but right. you know, if you're, if you're not pleased with the management, you know, you, you have the right to vote them out. Um, in a, in a publicly traded company, you're such a small, you're such a small fish in such a big pond, you know, cause you're dealing with institutional capital, you're dealing with mutual funds, you know, you have very little control or say in what a company does. And I don't find that attractive to be quite frank, because, you know, a lot of the times, you know, I have certain opinions and I, I do feel like they should be, you know, they should be accounted for. And I know that in dealing with a public, publicly traded company as a shareholder, and if I own like, you know, 100 or 200 stock, you know, 
why would anyone listen to me, right? Like I have no influence in the matter. So that's another advantage I'd want to point out. And yeah, the, the tax advantage. Oh my God. I mean, we could literally spend hours and hours talking about the tax, but you know, yeah. we're not trying to put the readers to sleep yet. So we'll, <laughs> we'll hold off on that for now. Yeah. It's, and I guess the one thing I wanted to touch on, like, uh, before we kind of end with that, we know that syndications and in general, private investments, because again, we're focusing on like real estate syndication. There, there's different things, you know, there's, there's all sorts of kind of private investments that have an inefficient market, like you said, but we know that it can usually at least double our returns of the stock market. It's tax advantaged. Um, we have more control, like it's stable. It pays us every month. You know, we don't have to just cross our fingers and hope that when we retire, we don't lose half of our net worth. Like what's the catch? Like how can you, is this too hard to invest in? Is it only available to like a select few people? Like, right. So it depends on the offering. So if it's a 506 C, if it's a reg D 506 C offering, uh, this means that the security can be uh, advertised publicly. Um, that'd be restricted to accredited investors. So if I remember correctly, the definition of accredited investor, don't quote me, I'm not a lawyer yet. Um, if I remember correctly, you need to have an income of $200,000 for the past two years or $300,000 as a household. Um, you need to have, or you could have a net worth of a million dollars, excluding your primary residence. Or more recently, they expanded the definition to include people that have passed their series 65 exam. So yep. If you have passed your Series 65 exam, which does not require sponsorship, then by definition, you become an accredited investor. However, if you're not accredited, you know, this isn't the end of the world. There is what's called 506B offerings, which are, these aren't advertised publicly and they have a certain cap on how many non-accredited investors they take. I think it's about 35. So in with regards to those kind of investments, you kind of have to make more of an active effort to go out and reach people um, and, you know, talk to people and build a relationship. But if you're not accredited and you want to get started, I think that's probably the best way to do so. But um, if you're not accredited and you have a little bit of time on your hands, do you write the Series 65? I mean, that's something that I'm actually planning on doing moving forward because I think that um, aside from credibility, I, I think that's a really good way to like, you know, get the accredited designation um, without having to necessarily wait until you make an X amount of money. So that's something I'd recommend to people that do have the time and are, are willing to go down that route. Right. That's, I, I love that you touched on that. Cause like you said, this is something where I would, you know, again, I'm not a lawyer and I probably will never be, but <laughs> from my uh, amateur advice, I would say do not invest in this stuff unless you know what you're doing. I truly believe the SEC says that you need to be sophisticated for a reason. And mm -hmm. with that, you know, if you do the little bit of studying to know what you're talking about, maybe you can't expect to be making 200 grand or be worth a million dollars or whatever soon. That series 65, oh my gosh, you know, just studying for that test makes you, there's a reason they like qualify you as an accredited investor for that thing. Cause um, again, I'll be transparent. I'm not worth a million dollars yet. So I'm taking that series 65 and from there it opens this whole new world of private investments, which you're already going to be knowledgeable about you know, if you pass that test, but, um, and then the other thing with investing in these syndications or any private investment, again, if you're accredited, the, the reason that regulation is there, that exemption is because you probably know what you're doing. <laughs> that that's why we can probably exactly. So like, probably let's, you know, there, there's, you know, being accredited, like having a certain income doesn't necessarily mean that you're in a position to make, uh, you know, 
you know, illiquid investments into private businesses, right? So right. the key is always just educate yourself and be as knowledgeable as you can. You know, even if you are accredited from a like from the standpoint of like having the income or the net worth, you know, you could lose all of that. And I mean, I had a friend of mine who told me about a story where, you know, a lot of people with, you know, who had, who were very wealthy, lost a lot of money because they just didn't know what they were doing. They invested in the wrong project and it was a giant mess and a lot of people lost money and it was really unfortunate and it could have been easily, you know, prevented had people taken the time to, you know, get educated, know, know what they're talking about, understand a project and do their due diligence. Right. I mean, yeah, if you're sophisticated, if you're not accredited, but you've done your homework and you know what the heck you're investing in, I'm going to be 10 times more comfortable investing with you, you know, as, as opposed to someone who just hits those requirements. But the other thing, I guess we should touch on kind of the, the one downside that is something about this type of investment is the illiquidity. So this is not something where, hey, I'm an accredited investor. I have a savings account with a million dollars in it. Um, I'm going to go put that million dollars in the syndication and it'll pay me 10% a year, right? In cash, you know, I'll make a hundred grand a year in cash flow. That is obviously kind of the downfall of this thing is the fact that when you're paying for the down payment of an apartment, your incentive is to get paid every month. But again, you, you really don't get that money back until a refinance or a sale or some kind of exit. Right. That's really important. I mean, when you're doing due diligence on any deal, you want to actually look at the exit, the exit, the exit strategy is so important um, because of the fact that you know you have you generate cash flow throughout the period in which you're holding an asset. But at the end of the day, if you're investing in a sponsor that, that doesn't have a clear idea for what the exit strategy is, it's kind of like, yeah, we'll hold it and we'll see what happens. That should make you feel uncomfortable as an <laughs> investor because you know, not that I've ever seen this. I'm just saying, you know, if you're you know, you, you may come across that. You never know. Like, unfortunately, I've only had the privilege of like looking at deals where like the sponsor had a very clear goal for an exit. It's like, yeah, we're going to refi all you guys out in year five, or we're going to sell this thing on year three. And you guys will expect to have like a 1.8 equity multiple or something along those lines. But you know, if you do come across, you know, you're going to come across a lot of deals once you start getting it, once you start building a track, once you start building a track record and traction as an investor, you know, you're going to get pitched. And, you know, one of the things you want to look at is like, well, what's the exit strategy? How am I getting out of here? And if there's no clear cut exit strategy, you know, run for the hills <laughs> because yep. that's where a lot of the, a lot of the returns come through the final sale or the, or the refinance. And if there's no clear plan for doing so, then, you know, you're, you should feel uncomfortable. That's not a good sign. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we can go over all sorts of red flags and, um, I know there's so many, like we could literally spend hours and hours talking about it, but you know, yeah. that's just something that anyone who's listening, like pay attention to the exit strategy. That matters a lot. I mean, if there's no clear exit strategy, then, you know, question right. whether or not this makes any sense. Right. And like you said, that flagship uh, syndication that I'm talking about with the 20% annual return or whatever, the typical way that might be structured is you'll get your 8% preferred return and then the GP promote split after that or whatever. Yeah. So you're maybe making you know, typically 10-ish cash on cash a year or something. And then the the way you make it 20% annualized is you collect a $400,000 or, you know, you collect a big chunk of change at exit. So if that's not defined, you're not actually reaping the benefit of, <laughs> of investing in a syndication because that's where a lot of the upside comes. Right. Cool. Well, I think we can kind of tail off now. So we've talked about alternative investments, private investments, why they're better, at least why you should consider them. Um, what's one piece of actionable advice that someone could take and 
you know, start educating themselves on this stuff. Yeah, sure. So like, I would recommend just, um, you know, reading books. That's sort of like how, I mean, if I ever have to learn something, the first thing I do is like, I find out like, what's the best rated book on the topic and I read it. And from there, I, I usually create like notes. I have a manual where it's like, I kind of recollect what I've learned. Cause I can't just, sometimes I forget things, but if I write them down, I have a, a firm recollection of what I put down. So a few books that I would recommend for people that are looking to raise capital. There was, um, there's that book by Brian Burke. I, mean, I can't remember the name. Um, Hands off investor. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. I, I'm reading that right now. I really, really like it. There's another book by Sean Cook called, um, investing in real estate, private equity or introduction to real estate, private equity. I can't remember the name. It's a very good, um, it's a good uh, overview of like all the technical terms that come with like investing in real estate, private equity and another book that, or another, I'd say not book, but it's a course I recommend is like, um, if you go into, if you go to Udemy, there's a, there's a course called, there's a, a, a I, don't, I don't even remember the name. Is it an instructor or a company? It's called break into CRE. They have yeah. a lot of courses on underwriting and I, that's how I actually learned how to like learn the basics of um, real estate finance because I don't have a financial background. So I had to learn things from scratch and I felt like that particular um, provider or education platform gave me a lot of good information. They have, I'm, I'm taking a course right now in development because I'm trying to go into the development world and I can tell you it's a whole new ball game once you start building from ground up. But you know, you can't just, I don't want to dive in. I want to like learn as much as I can before getting into a deal. And that's something that I would, that's some sort of actual advice I can give to anyone listening is like, don't rush. Don't ever feel pressured. You know, you know, there's a lot of sleazy salesmen out there that are going to try to, you know, get you into deals. But like at the end of the day, if, if you can't understand what's going on, don't invest in it. Right. It's that simple. And the only way you can really make better decisions is to understand every little nook and cranny of the deal and understand to the best of your ability, ask hard questions and don't be afraid of asking those hard questions, even if they could seem a little bit uncomfortable at first, because you may not have experience, but heck, you know, this is your money. Um, you know, you have a responsibility and you have a duty to ensure that the people that you're investing with are competent, that they're honest and that they, uh, you know, they have a track record and, you know, they have a very clear cut business plan for how they plan to add value. And the, be and the only way you can do this is through, again, educating yourself. Um, if you want to listen to good podcasts, you know, this is one hell of a podcast. I'd highly recommend listening to this one. Um, uh, honestly, there's tons out there, man. You just got to find the, you just got to find ones that resonate with you and that are very informative. And, you know, that's another way of learning. Um, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. I think those are, that's basically everything. I mean, that's how I've learned the business. Yeah. yeah no, it's awesome. I appreciate the kind words. And you know, like you said, there are a lot of much better podcasts out there to be, you know, straight up. If you look up multifamily investing, Oh my gosh, you know, that's how I learned too. you know, the books, the YouTube, the, the podcast, it's like, there's so much information out there. And like you said, my personal belief is that multifamily, I mean, that's just what I chose. You know, I went tunnel vision, this is my thing. I understand it very well. And I, I know how to invest in it. And it's like, that doesn't mean it's the correct answer, right? You should have a conviction based from evidence, not evidence based from a conviction. Like, don't just say, Oh, multifamily is great. I'll go do multifamily, right? Like read about all the other asset classes, look into other stuff. The, the one yeah. thing I would say is kind of a fundamental thing. It's like I said, look at the stuff the government incentivizes. So oil or I should say energy, agriculture, 
real estate. I mean, really, those are the three things, but start with like a fundamental level. Like you said, educate yourself on it and then use that evidence to form your opinion about what you should invest in. Um, but yeah, awesome advice. Um, so how can we get in contact with you, Shaw? Yeah, sure. So you can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. I'll leave uh, my email. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll send you my email. Just leave it in the show notes. Anyone feel free to email me. I'm happy to talk. Um, yeah, those are the, probably the two best ways to get in touch with me. And I just want to go over one point that you made earlier about the multifamily, because I thought that yeah. was just so important. Um, you know, I've always had this conversation with a lot of people. It's like, do you, do you specialize in a particular niche or do you, uh, do you go, you kind of go broad and I've always had that tension. So it's good to see that, you know, you've kind of chosen the path of like going narrow because I think that's, uh, you know, it takes a lot of, um, what's the word, uh, commitment to, you know, specifically focus on a niche. So kudos to, you know, I, I really applaud you for taking that route and, you know, becoming the specialist in one particular asset class. Yeah. And it, like you said, there's, there's value to both. Um, cause w- while I am, I've decided that like multifamily will be my niche, that it's going to be what I'm good at. Um, I, you always keep it on the back burner. Like, and, and one of the reasons I like multifamily is because people are always going to need a place to live and looking at the data, looking at the renters, looking at families, it just makes sense to me. But like you said, um, industrial is awesome. I know, I know that's something you really focus on and there's, there's different ways to make money. So I think there's a nice balance of, you know, becoming a specialist, but you never want to maybe tunnel vision is a bad word. You, you want to be a specialist, but you always want to be considering alternatives. No pun intended, but <laughs> yeah, that's right. Cool. Well, I'll definitely have all the info in the show notes below, but thank you so much for coming on Shaw. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on Ven. I, I had a great time here. Awesome. Same. Well, thank you everyone for listening and I will see you next week. <laughs>